Kajala Medical presents COVID-19 The Answers, the show that delivers the scientific evidence-based knowledge that can safely return us all to our pre-COVID lives. My name is Dr. Fumi Okanola, and I'll be hosting the show. Every week, you can listen to me interview a highly respected professional about the science that can reduce your risk of becoming infected with this coronavirus. This week's episode is SARS-CoV-2 is Airborne, Part 3, the successful implementation of mitigation measures. An interview with Shannon Horn, lead campus mechanical engineer at the University of Colorado at Boulder in the US, who discusses how air ventilation and air filtration were successfully implemented on the university campus under the guidance of Professor Jose Jimenez, environmental scientist, and Professor Shelley Miller, environmental engineer, with the help of Jason Schlosser, assistant director of facilities, operations services at the university. Now we'll focus on putting these risk reduction strategies to work in a real world environment. Another point worth mentioning is that there are non-COVID benefits to be gained from implementing measures to clear our air of the coronavirus, which I feel the audience will find very intriguing. So unfortunately, um, uh, Jason Schlosser has been unexpectedly called away, but we have the lovely and wonderful Shannon Horn here to um, tell us all about what happened, how the University of Colorado implemented some of the mitigation measures that we've talked about earlier. So it's my pleasure to introduce Shannon Horn. Shannon is the lead campus engineer in the facilities management team at the University of Colorado at Boulder. She's a mechanical engineer. Shannon, could you please describe to the audience what your job and role is at the university? Uh, yes, thanks, Fumi. Um, uh, so first of all, thanks for hosting us. And uh, we wanted to acknowledge and appreciate your efforts to help um, inform the larger global community. Um, I'm currently the lead campus mechanical engineer, as you stated, and for our CU Boulder campus. And so the CU has quite um, many campuses, but specifically the Boulder campus. And uh, my role has many hats from an authority having jurisdiction to commissioning agent to technical support for different campus strategic initiatives. Um, and in addition, I'm a co-chair for um, what we call campus lab accelerator team, which manages campus ventilation uh, specifically for labs in all areas across the campus. And then correspondingly with the pandemic, um, the rest of the campus has been lumped under there as well. Right. Wow. So I want to start this discussion with one of the most compelling facts that validates everything you've heard and will hear today about the incredibly successful work the team has done at the University of Colorado. Since the indoor risk reduction measures have been put into place by your team at the university, there's not been a single SARS-CoV-2 outbreak in an indoor setting. This fact has been validated by the testing and contract tracing team. This is an outstanding accomplishment that all of you should be proud of. Congratulations and well done. Thank you. So, okay, let's dive in. Uh, You've achieved successful information measures limiting what is termed long range transmission of SARS-CoV-2. Shannon, can you please describe to the audience the meaning of long range transmission from a scientific perspective? Yeah, um, and hopefully if you've had a chance to catch Jose's bit on the podcast series, um, essentially a long-range transmission is um, basically the virus suspending itself in an aerosol way in the room. So 
it's not in that close proximity conversational range. It's more at the volume of the space that the virus suspends or stays in, or alternatively, when it gets um, uh, passed on from one room to another room via the mechanical ventilation system, if that happens to be um, what that room is served by. So pre-vaccination, a team was assembled by the University of Colorado at Boulder with a variety of people with specialised skills to formulate a strategy to deal with this whole new pandemic world. Can you tell the audience about the facilities task force and your work with Professor Shelley Miller to keep students safe in the fall of 2020 and to date? Yes, um, of course. Um, the task force was pulled actually together by our Vice Chancellor for Infrastructure and Sustainability, um, David King. And um, it consisted of entities across the campus from student affairs, housing, athletic researchers, and infrastructure staff, um, of which Jason and I currently work under. And we had subcommittees under that task force. Um, so what I really appreciate about your podcast um, is that it's it's tackling it from a multi-layered approach and understanding the dynamics of the virus. And um, so essentially, uh, Jason and I were co-chairs along with the campus industrial hygienist and consulted with Shelly and Jose um, regarding what they're finding in their research. Um, at the beginning, we really didn't know what was going on other than that we'd heard it was potentially aerosolized. and um, you know, we felt like we won the lottery. We had both Shelley and Jose, um, and it's not that common to have um, aerosol scientists on your campus. So again, we felt like we won the lottery and we reached out to them pretty immediately. And Jose actually also reached out to us to see what he could do to help. Um, and that's how it kind of initiated from there. Shelley in particular was studying quite the Skagit Choir study, which was one of the earlier super spreader events that was happening across the globe. And uh, she was able to determine the impact of aerosols on the spreading of the virus from that incident and develop. And so that helped inform our task force um, some of the ways that the virus was spreading at that time. And both Jose and Shelley had written letters to the WHO saying we're, we're seeing that this is in fact aerosolized and was hoping that they would acknowledge that to help the, the world out. We're all lucky, um, as well as you being lucky to have um, the expertise of Professor Shelley Miller and Jose Jimenez um, to inform us all in the world. So that's fantastic. You worked with, as you've said, um, Professor Miller and Professor Hermanev to formulate a plan and, and with Jason and his team to execute the plan. Um, so from our conversations in the past, you approached the university campus like a small city and divided each space into a type of room. Can you please explain to the audience the genesis of this approach and how you implemented this venture? Yeah, um in a nutshell, um, a university is quite unique. We, we literally are like a small city. So we have everything from residents to dining facilities to offices, classrooms. We even have bowling alleys, rec centers, and we're even classified as an airport because we have the ability to fly drones. So um, it's definitely a, a microcosm of what is happening on a larger scale globally. Um, and as I stated before, early on, we, we struggled to understand how the virus was transmitting. Um, and due to Shelley's research around the choirs and some restaurants in Asia, it, 
it became um, a focus to determine mitigation measures for each of the different activities that were high aerosol generating versus something more sedentary where people weren't really speaking much or not a lot of interaction. So just that dynamic alone um, put different activities into different risk categories. So our campus first approach was addressing the risk factor of what we were dealing with. And, you know, with anything in life, nothing is risk-free. And just like when you drive your car down the road, um, there's always an inherent risk um, in anything we do. So we like to give that analogy of um, a car when you, we decided to take more of a layered risk management approach to minimize the risk of transmission, which fortunately turned out to be effective. Um, so we equated like, you know, masks as like the brakes on your car um, and your seatbelts to minimize the short range transmission. Hopefully Jose covered that. And then um, using cleaning and also um, filtration at our air handling units and our classrooms to um, mitigate the long range transmission paths. So when we looked at our whole campus and the outlay um, of the demographics of the different types of systems, we categorized them into three main types of facilities. And then from there, we could develop the plan. Okay, so um, so just um, to clarify, because we mentioned this in um, part one, so um, breathing produces aerosols, talking even more, um, shouting more than that, singing, loads so I guess not only did you have to consider you said the the different rooms and their dimensions and classify them in a certain way but also the activities am I clear yes the activities and then also the types of ventilation systems so our team was tasked more concentrated on the types of uh, systems that were serving the space and Essentially, we had three primary types and then buildings that were hybrids of those primary types. And the mitigation measures at the end of the day were still based on filtration. There's three main types. One, there's like 100% outside air where you're just bringing all your outside air in and it's conditioned via a mechanical system. And then there's the second type is what we call um, recirculated where it it combines outside air with return air from the space to condition a room. And then the last one is natural ventilation where windows are the primary source of ventilation for space. So different areas in the university had different types of HVAC system fitted or none at all. And so you had to work out whether to increase the number of air change changes per hour in some of them if if you could do that and 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 put filters in some and then other measures for those rooms that had no HVAC system. Is Correct. Yeah. And essentially the the paradigm was to bring more outside air, fresh air into the spaces, no matter how they were conditioned, uh, whether the heated or cooled in a particular way. Ventilation and air filtration were the mitigation measures used to provide air clean of the coronavirus for all on campus. Can you please describe to us what modifications were done to the HVAC systems and the other types of units installed to do this? 
Yeah, so we ended up going down the path of um, putting minimum of Merg 13 filters on the mechanical units that were supplied um, that for rooms that were served by those types and higher. Some of our spaces were already LEED certified, which means they most likely had MERV 14 and higher filters on them. Um, and then uh, for the naturally ventilated classrooms, putting filters on your window is not really productive and um, that actually doesn't address the viral load. So Shelley's work in particular was instrumental in helping us size um, what we call recirculated HEPA units that are portable and you can sit in the classrooms and it correspondingly creates an, what we call an equivalent air change rate, mm. um, which means it's cleaning the air at a certain rate um, to be equivalent to fresh, bringing the fresh air in from outside. So speaking to scientists about the portable air filters and, um, and he didn't like them because um, he, what he was finding was schools were just buying one filter, sticking it at the front of the classroom. And then if you have a class of 30 or 40, the kids at the back were not getting the benefit. So did you have to do some working sort of calculating the dimensions and how many filters were needed? Yep, absolutely. And also the proportions of the room. And so we often had usually three to four, it depended on the room size, but usually on opposite ends um, or on the sides so that it was picking up the full spectrum of the room. And when somebody is selecting um, a portable HEPA filter, you want to make sure they're AHAM certified. Mm. And they'll actually say on there how many square feet that they will actually cover. Right. So based on those two variables, we're able to prescribe a certain number of HEPA filters based on the HEPA filters capabilities, but also the room size. Jose discussed um, germicidal UV radiation earlier in the podcast um, as an indoor risk mitigation measure. Could you tell us if this technology was used on campus and if not, why? Yeah, um, we really found that technology quite compelling. Um, at the time, um, hospitals were actually in high demand for the technology, and um, that was one of the interests. We wanted to make sure we weren't taxing or overtaxing that supply chain. Um, in addition, our campus ages anywhere from you know, 120 to 10 years old. So um, Oftentimes, our electrical capacities and our infrastructure wouldn't be able to support that sort of technology without a lot more time and a lot more infrastructure investment to achieve that. So um, I actually find the technology um, great um, from a personal perspective. That's just my opinion. Um, we just don't have the space, the electrical infrastructure to support it. Um, and or the time and, and finances to implement as well. Well, that brings up an excellent point, actually. So, you know, every building is kind of unique, really. And I guess you have to look at, at the structure of your building, things like your electricity capacity, your finance, and then make a decision based on the resources that you can afford to implement or what your building would be fashioned towards accepting. So 
that's a really good point you've made there, which kind of brings, I mean, I mentioned it uh, previously with Jose. I think in order for these things to be implemented, there's going to have to be an improved set of engineers in every area that can help specific sort of major buildings and some education for the smaller ones. Yeah, and I I feel, um, I imagine there's a lot of people that, you know, universities typically are quite tight as far as finances go. And filters are fairly inexpensive. Um, I think this early on the supply chain issues were an issue at the time. Um, but now I think that's been worked out. And um, Ashray's done a really good article on MERV readings of filters and uh, their benefits. And you can see where the the MERV 13 filters are effective in capturing that viral load, specifically for the long-range transmission. Do you know what ASHRAE stands for? Oh, yeah. Um, so ASHRAE is for the American Society of Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Engineers. Having an ASHRAE-approved air filtration system or standalone filter is preferred. Isn't that correct, Shannon? Yeah, ASHRAE actually doesn't do the certifications. Um, it's specifically the AHAM. A-H-R-A-M. Um, and that's the certifying body for the filters. Right, I see. And ASHRAE provides the information. Yeah, well, they've done lots of studies about um, different, like from flu virus to just different viral studies. And there's a great body of work there that um, is available to the public as well. So. Um, along with trained personnel and the cost to implement these systems, you, you, you need to consider maintenance as a major factor in achieving a su- successful outcome from um, from conversations I've had with you and Jason previously. So um, Jason's team helped to fit and maintain each of the HVAC units used in the risk mitigation program. Shannon, are you able to enlighten us a little bit on what that entailed and outline what you believe is needed after they've been implemented to maintain the successful results that you achieved? Yeah, um, I mean, Jason, I'm not sure I'll give it full credit for the great heavy lift that he did um, and his team as well. Um, But you can imagine a small city, we have approximately 12 million square feet of um, infrastructure to support and uh, that's not, not something you just do in a day. Jason's team in particular um, was very instrumental in organizing and deploying um, the HEPA filters that we placed in the naturally ventilated classrooms, and then also uh, changing out the filters in a lot of our air handling units to MERC-13. And just a cautionary note, um, you need to be careful uh, when you're retrofitting your um, what we call return air HVAC or mechanically ventilated systems because the MERV-13s do add additional uh, static pressure or too much um, resistance to the airflow, which can limit your capacity to some degree and then um, also impact your mechanical system's longevity potentially if it's too strenuous. Um, It's great they cataloged everything, set up preventative maintenance schedules with each of the devices and also fine-tuned all the air handling units um, prior to school starting um, that first 2020 semester back in the fall. And um, we felt it was important that 
and, and again, at that point, it wasn't fully confirmed or know what we know fully about the virus. So um, the team had a lot of um, conviction behind it, knowing that their jobs would potentially protect somebody and their loved ones. So, so yeah, that was quite interesting that you said um, what you said about the MERV filter. And Jose uh, mentioned that earlier. So the higher the, he said that the average MERV was six to seven, um, which didn't filter virus enough. Um, and the higher numbers you have, the better the filter. But then you have to take that into account. If you pick too high a number, then you're not going to be heated in indoors or or you're not going to get the air conditioning you want because it would filter too high. So I guess that's what you were cautioning, which says to me how you need some form of expert who knows what they're talking about to fit these things. Um, so that was a really good point. My other point was that um, it sounds like there needs to be ongoing maintenance and um, because it's not about just, just uh, sort of changing the filter and leaving it or sticking the standalone filter and leaving that. They need to be checked um, and they need to be maintained. And I guess you have to incorporate that into your costs. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, the cadence of that frequency um, also depends on the type of system you have, like whether it needs to be checked more regularly or not. Given the size and the types of systems we have, we checked them about once a month. And that was um, what we learned. We probably could go to quarterly um, instead of once a month, we were just extra cautious at the beginning. But we're also in a climate that has fires. And so um, depending on your how quickly your filters would load, that would also determine how often you would need to change out your filters. So Boulder um, has a lot of cottonwood trees. And during cottonwood season, um, they they bloom and there's like cotton flying um, everywhere around town and they um, they clog up the mechanical systems very quickly. So the one benefit that um, Shelley is really a good advocate for as well is filtration serves more than just virus um, mitigation. It serves also to mitigate outdoor air pollution or pollutants of any sort, whether it's from fires to cottonwood or environmental pollutants. Um, and yeah, it it addresses all kind of viral loads. We've noticed that we've had a decrease in flu incidences on our campus as well due to the extra filtration measures in place. So while you, you live and breathe literally and figuratively indoor risk mitigation every day, this would be new information for the significant majority of our audience. The process seems complex time-consuming and intuitively costly. What ideas do you have on how this indoor risk reduction strategy could be implemented in real-world environments such as schools, restaurants, public transportation, elevators, office buildings, etc., that might not have the budget or specialised personnel of the University of Colorado? Yeah, I think... Um... It, it's actually not that challenging to implement the filters or the portable HEPA filters if needed. Um, and if, if that is even too much, I'd suggest being having events outside and opening the windows um, as, a, as a rule of thumb. And then also if the space is definitely too hot because there's too many people, that would be a, another kind of warning signal to maybe to make a different choice point if you're concerned. Uh, in general, um, 
how we have particularly viewed it at the university is it served more than just a, a virus mitigation tool. It's, it's cost benefit is in all the other mitigation measures like the seasonal fires we get um, in Colorado, the pollen and the reduction of other people being out sick for flu or other um, illnesses that are going around the campus. So I, I feel like we found the value in our solution that it extended more beyond just the COVID um, mitigation measures. It's addressing more concerns for indoor air quality on a larger scale. Um, and in particular, in, in last year, when we had the major fires from California, all that we Denver actually had the worst quality in the whole world at for a few days there, and the the spaces in our buildings ended up being red or refuge for the smoke that was outside. That was really bad for everyone as long as it was really unhealthy and we were getting advisories and um, it was nice to have a campus to provide that support for the community. Yeah, that's just so fantastic because you often hear when you mention, oh, um, you know, you need to modify your HVAC, you need to fit filters people think oh the cost the costs can't afford it but it looks like i think you and jose have identified there are you know simple and 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 fairly straightforward ways of implementing these things jose even mentioned kind of making a box filter and then also all the added benefits that you get in terms of reducing other viruses so reduction in influence things like influenza um, allergies in the cottonwood providing a safe refuge um, during a fire season um, of clean air. So I think that's fantastic. And I don't think there's any excuse now for these things not to be fitted. So it's great that you've participated in this so that the public can be made aware. Yeah, great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Shannon, for joining us today and showing us um, an example of a successful implementation of, um, of how you combat SARS-CoV-2 that's airborne through ventilation and, and filtration on, on campus. And I hope all of the listeners will will take a call to arms and, or in their, wherever they live and, and demand that their authorities repeat what you've successfully done. Thank you for really educating um everybody. I know this is a tall order and I just want to applaud the efforts you're doing as well. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Shannon. And um, please join us next week for a further episode of COVID-19 The Answers. Please join us for next week's episode 12 entitled Far UVC with Professor Kirk Atkinson. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of COVID-19 The Answers. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, rate and review and do visit our website kajalamedical.com forward slash COVID-19 The Answers.